Hi, this is Mike Coleman from the Soundworks Collection video series, and today I'm incredibly excited to reconnect with supervising sound editor and sound designer, Mark Mangini, who a few years ago we uh, connected when he first released the Odyssey sound effects collection through Pro Sound Effects, which to me was an incredibly exciting opportunity for the sound community because this was the first time that both Mark Mangini and Richard Anderson had released their sound effects to the public. And now it's a few years later, and since then they've released a few other collections underneath the Odyssey collection, including vehicles, Foley, ambiences, and humans. And now we're talking about this Creatures collection, which to me is maybe if you were stuck on a desert island with only a few collections, <laughs> Creatures to me would be the one sound effects library that I would essentially want to have. And so I'm really excited to talk with Mark on SoundWorks uh, Collection. So Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Michael. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here, and I, and I love the enthusiasm you bring to this. I, I know we geek out. This is sound effects libraries. You know, this isn't COVID shots, but uh, we get to yep. have our moment in the sun and, and talk about stuff that we love. So thank you so much for, for doing this. I, I can't wait to dig in a little bit and talk about how we record and how we design and you know whatever you want to get into, I'm into. Yeah. Yeah. So just from uh, top level, this library is 6,800 plus files. It's over 36,000 sounds. And uh, for those who want to nitpick, it's averaging five seconds per file. So if that means to anything to anybody, there, there's another statistic. And there's a wide variety of uh, over 100 different animals and creatures, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish, and a vertebrae. I feel like this is like Noah's Ark of the sound effects world. So, well, we might only have one of some things. I can't promise yeah. two of everything, Michael. Yeah. So let's go. Let's take a step back. So, um, both you and Richard Anderson, a longtime collaborator and friend of yours, this is an accumulation of just some of these specific titles from your library. When you first were thinking about releasing the Creatures Library. How did you start to think about breaking down the different sections of the library? What, what categories made most sense? Well, I, I think the overarching philosophy was let's, let's publish as many um, animals. We wanted to have as comprehensive a collection as possible. Over the course of 25 years, Richard and I have recorded and captured, you know, a, a zoo's worth of, of, of critters from small, you know, from insects to elephants. And our goal was simply, uh, let's give it all in this collection because when, especially when you're designing creatures, which, you know, that's the name of the library, um, but it, it's really a multi-purpose, it's kind of a Swiss army knife. It's all the animals and birds and lizards and whatnot, invertebrates that we've ever recorded, uh, and fish and whales. Um, uh, but those are also the elements that we subsequently would use as fodder for the design of creature voices, um, you know, in, in genre movies. And you know, part of our style was always starting with organic ingredients rather than synthetic ingredients to, to do the design, uh, you know, the design work when we were making creatures. So we thought, let's give everybody, you know, every, every possible tool in the toolkit to, you got, you need a creature sound. I mean, you need an animal sound. It's in this library. If you want to turn one of those sounds into something we've never seen or heard before, you got tons of fodder to, to work with and manipulate. Yeah, I mean, historically, animal vocals have been just kind of the foundation of sound design when coming up with, 
for so many aspects. I mean, sound of uh, creature sound effects go into so many things that you wouldn't think that necessarily makes sense. We hear lion roars and yeah. growls and hiss or snake hisses in ways and uses that typically don't um, think like it's the most literal sense. Well, um, thinking back to when you first started recording some of these sounds that are in this library, what was your thoughts just about the idea of recording animals? Is this something that you had any experience in? Like, how did you, when you first started recording animals, what do you remember from those early years? You know, as a journeyman sound editor, before I partnered with Richard, um, and before I really developed my skills, I, you know, I learned the early tricks of the trade from my mentors. You know, you, you go to the stock sound library that you had, and you'd take the lion roar or the elephant scream or the snake hiss, and you'd slow it down and play it backwards and, you know, the, those tropes. And that got you started down the road to creating creature sounds but you were always left a little bit wanting because the library sound was, you know, maybe not so modern or maybe it was recorded on a, you know, distant and you didn't have like right in the mouth of the creature. And you just, you just wanted for more. And for Richard and I both coming from, you know, sound houses where we cut our teeth in sound editing, um, we had this hunger to just start doing it differently you know there's there's that old saw in sound um that what we do is a lot like what a great chef does um uh the freshest ingredients make the most delicious dish so too in sound the freshest sounds make the best sounding soundtrack and we recognize that to go to the next level you have to start recording when we met in 1979 i think it was the first thing we did was we bought an Agra, which at that time, a, a, a 15 IPS reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was state-of-the-art at that time. And we bought the best microphones that we could get. We bought uh, the, the, the Shep's uh, hypercardioid CCM, no, CMC41s. And we knew this combination was going to give us a real edge getting out into the field, if we could figure out how to do that, to start capturing the... Uh, the zoological world. So, um, you know, look, it started in the early days before we, we, we got really good at this. Richard um, was and still is a gentleman farmer. So, of course, the early fodder was the pigs and chickens and geese that he raised. And you'd be surprised what you can make out of a pig or a chicken or a goose you know, once you bring it into your workstation and start whacking it up and putting some plugins on it. I knew we didn't have the really big, uh, the big cats, which is what I wanted because it looked kind of furry and feline like a tiger or a lion. And uh, I searched the phone book and made cold calls and found animal trainers that had big cats that would allow me to come out for a fee and hang around the cages and wait for them to do something. Because of course, and you know, I, I guess it, it needs to be said, um, no animals were harmed in the making of any of these sound effects. Um, animal trainers are loath to, and rightfully so, uh, uh, antagonize an animal because it's, 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 it's not good training for the animals when they actually have to work with humans in the future on camera. So often it's, a, it's an exercise in patience, waiting around by cages for the animal to get hungry and do something. And sometimes though, though that, that patience is, is rewarded uh, with some, some pretty great stuff. 
Was there a movie that you saw or another use case that really inspired you in, in, into a way of thinking about creature vocals and how to record them or how to use them that you weren't aware of before? Yeah, well, in in a hundred ways, Star Wars flipped my lid because of its sonic ingenuity. And as I begged around the, the community to find out how did Ben Burt do all that stuff, <laughs> You, you know, we learned that the Wookiee uh, was made from these recordings he made of a baby bear. And you can see those videos of him actually recording that bear. Um, but it took sort of the genius of Ben to recognize that what he heard in the field that day with some very clever, you know, bit, uh, you know, detailed editing of taking little phrases and putting them on mouth opening closes, uh, he could create a creature that who would ever have thought that's the, that's a bear? It sounds like a Wookiee. It's it's not a baby <laughs> bear. So um, that that tipped me off that there that's a universe I needed to explore further. I needed to go and record my version of the baby bears and start seeing what happened when I brought them back into the studio and applied technology to them and, and fitted them to the images that I had. Yeah, some of the pictures that you, you share, which is pretty amazing to see from, you know, over the years of you recording these different animals. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, let's use our domestic animals. Let's go to a zoo, which honestly has crowds and can be really noisy and you can't control it. So what were some of, what were some of the places around the world that you found were kind of like the least expected or kind of presented themselves as great opportunities to be very patient or just have the time and, and be able to get the perspectives for the sounds that you wanted? Well, we, we spent a good deal of time locally with the animal, um, I'm going to use the wrong term, I want to say farms, because they're not farms. They, 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 these are the equivalent of casting agencies for critters. You know, if you need a tiger or a lion or a leopard in a movie, there are uh, commercial concerns out in the desert uh, that are raising them and taking care of them beautifully. And you know, for a, a fee, you can go out and hang around and hope to capture the, the sounds that you're looking for. And often you do. I mean, especially around feeding time, there, there's a good opportunity to capture some things. There's some territorial things you can do with males and females or mothers and young um, that doesn't antagonize them, but does cause them to, uh, you know, make the sounds that, that you're looking for. And and, you know, it's, it's an interesting footnote that in the wild, you know, in movies, we, we see these majestic beasts making these incredible noises. But in the wild, the only time that an elephant trumpets or a lion roars is when they're threatened or you are threatening their young. Um, it's, it's pretty quiet out there in the jungle and, and out there in the field when we need to sometimes capture these things. Um, my, my favorite story is for a movie that I needed Gentoo penguins and specifically Gentoo penguins. Um, we ended up find there, there is one individual in the world that has, is it a gaggle? Is it a pod? I don't, yeah. know, I don't know, a brace. I don't know what you call mm-hmm. a collection uh, of, of penguins. And he, he was not in L.A., but he was going to be in New York uh, for a very brief period of time. So we made arrangements to record these penguins in New York. And penguins, even more so than any other animal, just don't make any sounds at all. And as fate would have it, um, 
we recorded for a total of 24 hours, three eight-hour sessions, literally standing and waiting for something to happen because penguins don't make any sound and you can't train them. The only thing you can train a penguin to do is to go from where the fish aren't to where the fish are. And maybe you can tease them with a little sardine and you might get something out of them. And out of that 24 hours of nonstop sound rolling, we captured about five and a half minutes of continuous utterances of squat and you know, they make these, these really cute and silly sounds. Um, and, and, and to accommodate that, by the way, we had to build a refrigerated ADR stage. Um, penguins have to be kept at 38 degrees Fahrenheit or below. No, no ADR room would not only would not would allow penguins in their stage, but would they be able to get the air conditioning down that low? So we rented uh, the, uh, the trailer of a, of a tractor trailer truck and put in a refrigeration unit and put in sound dampening uh, materials and built an ISO booth, in fact, where we could corral one penguin at a time into the ADR booth, if you will. And then we waited for 24 hours and got some great recordings. That's amazing. You mentioned obviously the Nagra early on. Did you guys find that you essentially would go back to the same gear setup or package whenever you record animals? Like what are the things that when you are going out to record creatures, you'd always want to have with you because, you know, there's different considerations like underwater, you want a hydrophone right, or, of course. you know, like, like there's different things that you'd, I think you'd have in your bag. What were some of those other aspects that you'd pack? Well, you never knew how close you were going to get. So it was pretty vital to have a really great shotgun microphone in case you didn't have the reach or the proximity that you needed. And on top of that, the longest boom pole that, you know, our scrawny little arms can actually hold up. And you want to telescope that thing out 30 feet and they will allow you to get that into the cage uh, and get that mic as close as they think is safe. Um, so a, a lightweight like carbon fiber boom pole, really good shotgun microphone. And I might add an expendable uh, foam or woolly because a lot of these animals, when they're actually make, doing their thing, there's, there's spit and bile and vomit and all sorts of untoward things coming out of the orifice that is gonna sully your microphone. And we lost many a, a microphone and many a woolly and many a rye coat. Uh, I, I would add that we did a great deal of recordings with camels because camels are an incredibly bizarre sounding and vocal animal. And like a cow, they have multiple stomachs and they eat grasses and then they regurgitate them. And in the process, the stomach acid comes with the regurgitate regurgitate and it burns your skins. And uh, my recording partner, Doug Hempel and I learned that the hard way. You get too close to a camel and they go and they spit this, it's like a bleach and it bleaches your skin white. And you have to go to the doctor and get it, get it removed because it can burn through. Oh, so God. there's a great deal of danger in this. And maybe we'll get to that <laughs> as another subtopic a little later on. 
there's, some, there's a great deal of danger involved in, in doing this correctly. Um, let's see, what else in the kit? Uh, sometimes you can't even get near the animal, so it's great to have um, a radio mic, you know, a, a, a transceiver set up. Um, we do this with horses and some of the wild cats where you can strap a, a mic, you know, locally to the collar transmitting and you're a nice safe 50 yards away and then they start doing their thing and you get the close-up the breathing and the panting which is really hard to get even with a good shotgun microphone So that that um, radio mic, you know, a, a little lav transmitter receiver on the on the recorder side is, is a pretty valuable tool. Um, and you know, you know, uh, you know, omnidirectional microphones probably not so useful. Hypercardioids and and shotguns are really your best friend in in those situations. And and there's another technique that we used. Um, we used, even though we had a stereo Nagra or later a stereo DAT or later a multi-channel digital recorder, we would always record animals in what we called multi-mono. It often makes sense to go out with at least two microphones and put one padded down 20 dB from the other because while you're reaching to get that really great purr uh, or, or growl, um, the minute the roar comes, you're, you're way overgained uh, for something that's going to blow your mics out. So you want to set two channels, maybe put out two mics on that boom pole and set them 20 dB apart so that when the big sound comes, you're set for that as well and you don't lose it. And, that, you know, you learn that by making mistakes. You, from, you come back from the field and you put your tape up or your, your, your dad or your digital recording and, oh, oh, I lost that one. I was reaching for those subtle things and he blew me out. Yeah, that's a great point because the dynamics of animals are not just singular levels and they, they tend to go, there used to be a, a threshold of where it would traditionally get really loud. And that's why I think the Nagra was always the go-to because it was really hard to distort a Nagra. Uh, and, and I think that's obviously the case now with technology today. Yeah. You have a much higher ceiling um, before things start to distort and just you can't really, you know, um, salvage those sounds. I want to ask you about some of the other standout animals that's on the library. Some were in, the insects and also horses, which I feel like are both motion-driven animals and require like creative ways to record them or recreate the sensation of these. So, what what what's the insight to insects and horses? Well, let's see. Um, insects. There's a couple of things you can do. Um, you can actually buy these gauze insect traps. Uh, it, it's a transparent gauze, much like you would see, in fact, in a in a jungle movie, the netting that you put, you know, sure, you know, in African Queen, you're, you you want to go to bed at night and not have the tsetse flies give you malaria, so you drop the netting. You can buy these gauze cages with ribs uh, in them, and you can place insect or insects inside of these, and you don't get any, you know. You, know, you can't put them in a glass enclosure. You can't put them in a plastic enclosure. You'll get the, the acoustic resonances from, the, from those enclosures. So you need something that breathes like this gauze. So you can place them inside of this and you can get a, a fair amount of movement you know, with, a, with a fly or a mosquito. You know, as he's trying to find the boundaries of this gauze. Um, that's one way. Another way, this, was, this may sound cruel, but I have no love for insects is um, 
you can put them in the refrigerator and as they cool down, they lose their um, activity levels. Their body goes into a hibernative state. So what you can do is, especially with the bigger bugs, you put them in the fridge. You haven't hurt them because you're going to bring them out of the fridge. And while they're asleep, you super glue a fishing line tether to their abdomen. And then at the other end of the tether, you put a thumbtack down. And then when they wake up, they wake up and they try to fly, but they're stuck to this tether and that you can just track them just low. You know, you're, you're following this bee or you're following this wasp because it can't get away because it's tethered. And that's, uh, that's it's another way to, to get insects. Yeah, so, something about the um, horses that I was, I was really curious to hear the recordings because I, I just went, thought about back to my work um, working on the recordings that Alan Splett did with yeah. Ann Krober for Black Stallion, which was 1979. And it won the Academy Award that year for special, like a special achievement for sound editing. Yeah. And I felt like that before horses were like, I don't know, I'm, I'm making an assumption, but I felt like maybe the, the coconuts, the Monty Python version of like the clickety clackety. <laughs> And I, I think what, you know, Alan and Ann None of the and, sounds in this library are coconuts. Let's just say yeah, that from right, the right, outset. Fair enough. But, the, the, but the, reason, the reason why I bring it up is, um, like I said, to get a horse, it's not like, you, did you ride a horse and record the host? What was your approach to, to your horse vocals and feet and, yeah. Same as all the other big animals. I never rode a horse. I, I'm not proficient yep. enough and I never <laughs> deigned to learn, but we would always hire riders to do that work for us. And then we, you know, the tricky bit is finding a pasture or a ravine or an area, you know, because horses, their, their interaction with the surface is critical. You know, you're, sometimes you're looking for horses on dirt. Sometimes it's on gravel. Sometimes they're, it's on rock. Sometimes they're crossing through riverbeds. Sometimes it's on grass. Sometimes it's on asphalt. So you have to go through all the iterations of the, the, the interaction with the surface that the horse is on to get like a really complete set. So there's a great deal of, of work that goes into casting your locations. Do they have the services? And is it quiet enough? You're not near an airport because of course, air traffic is the bane of any field recordist's existence. And it's always, you know, that jet overhead is just stepping on the nice distant away as, as the horse travels off, you know, a mile down the road or down the path. So, uh, but the, the techniques are still the same that uh, we would still always use hypercardioids or, or shotgun mics, usually in mono. Those kinds of sounds in terms of the, the footfalls, there's not a wide dynamic range for that. You can track mono and pan, not pan. And um, then, you know, you, you might go into the barn and do a vocal series. Uh, you also want to go outside so you don't get the acoustic uh, reflections from the, the interior of a barn. Um, and you just work the horse until the horse had to have hay. I guess. <laughs> until they were done vocalizing. Yeah. <laughs> until they were done. Yeah. And, you know, horses... Uh, the horses were a little bit easier. I remember the trainers having vocal commands <laughs> that could elicit at least a, a pretty decent whinny from the horses uh, on command. So those are pretty good. Um, we we have some pretty great sounds of um, a horse giving birth, I believe. That was a one-off that I didn't capture. <laughs> Mm. 
horses are, are also a great um, source of creature sounds. I've made a lot of creatures out of horse vocals. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at just the list. I mean, there's so many animals that, that are so interesting. And I imagine sometimes you don't know if their vocalization is going to be if it's as distinctive or if it matters, like if you, if it's the vaguer sound is a more interesting one because then it can be used for many different cases. Right. So what were some of the animals that you, that maybe weren't the most sought after, or you didn't think that they were going to be good vocals that ended up being maybe some, you know, foundational sounds in your library <laughs> yeah. and you kept going back to over the years. Now I have to go through all the, the creatures. I've done so many creature voices in films. Yeah. Um, you know, most people don't or are not familiar with the sounds that um, cetaceans make, which is to say the family that encompasses whales. Uh, they make a, a, a very weird and bizarre set of sounds, but I'm talking about it's all the other things that whales do that you've never heard before that, that are because out of the box, it's a sound that I don't really have to do much to uh, to have you wonder, well, wow, where did that come from? What was that? I don't want to meet that thing in a dark alley. I was asked, when do you use animal um, vocals and sounds in vehicles? What, what are the types of sounds that make their way into vehicles? Well, um, mostly the big cats, because the cats have that kind of undulating, that sort of purring mechanism that flutters like like an idling engine, you know, like a, a big throaty V8 goes, and that's what a tiger and a lion and a puma. And a cougar or an ocelot, they all make those kinds of vocalizations. And so it's easier to, to disguise animal sounds into the engines uh, to, to, you know, just give them a, a certain otherness. I mean, we've, we've been cheating animal sounds on top of, on top of vehicles, uh, real or imagined, for, for a long time. In fact, on, on Mad Max Fury Road, we sweetened, you know, my... My deconstruction of, of the story was uh, I saw Moby Dick. I saw a Morton Joe as, as Ahab and, and the war rig itself as the great white whale. And he was obsessed with killing the great white whale. So we imbued the sounds of the war rig, which include big diesel V8 truck engines, but sweetened with to, uh, sweetened with whale sounds to anthropomorphize it, to make it sound more like it's a living, breathing thing. To, to us, um, the war rig was a creature. It was actually a character. I would argue that the war rig might have more screen time. The only people with more screen time than the war rig is, is Mad Max and Furiosa. And yeah, I, wanted I, mean, Mad Max, yeah. I wanted to make these, these vehicles sound like they had personality. So that was, that was one of the methodologies, was imbue them with, with uh, animal sounds. I mean, it felt like every vehicle had its own sound, its own tone, its own growl. It, it like there's something very the animalistic nature of these sounds play into just our own visceral response. And well, exactly. I think, yeah. Well, that, well, you know, that back to your original question. That's an important psychological underpinning to why we use real animal sounds for creatures and monsters and aliens because they excite some lizard brain response in us. We we have 
you know, this probably goes back to pre-primitive man. Uh, you know, we have a, 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 an inbred response to danger when we hear a, a, a ferocious animal, uh, you know, emit those growls and roars because we have to hightail it and run. And we, we, I think we're working on that same subliminal level when we use these same sounds acoustically recorded uh, for creatures. We want, we want to instill that same amount of instinctual fear that, that would not, none of us can really run away from. Yeah, I'm thinking early, early, long back in your career for you and Richard for the Anna Jones uh, films, there's some snakes in there, there's some tigers. And I mean, do you remember any of the record trips that you were making early on for, for oh that my film God. around that time? Uh, well, the, the, the biggest trip I made for Raiders, my, my responsibility was for the monkey, the, uh, the, the pet monkey, uh, who is Sala's sort of pet. And uh, I started, I went all over Southern California to every zoo, every animal trainer to find those small simians. And I quickly discovered, though I recorded, and there are, all those sounds are in this library, a wide variety of, of monkeys and chimps, although that was a monkey. I believe that was a capuchin. And I, I captured a lot of capuchin monkey recordings. movie that was bigger than life and they just didn't capture um, just the, the, the kind of personality that we wanted. So we ended up actually sweetening um, with real monkey sounds, a very small amount from the library. Most of that monkey was Frank Welker, the, the famous voiceover artist, um, because he does this amazing monkey impression. Yeah. Um, but I, I did capture a, a, a great deal of monkeys. I remember one in particular, I was out at the wildlife way station and they allowed me to get right up to the cage, which they said was against protocol. They, I, but they liked me and they saw me with a microphone and I got, I, got, I got right up in his grill and he hadn't eaten yet. And he reached out and he clawed me and he gashed my nose. And that sent me to the hospital because though, you know, they're so close to us in our blood type, that, that was a deadly, that was a deadly gash. And I had to get a tetanus shot and some other shot and stitches. And it's just because his arm came shooting out of the cage and like grabbed my face and wanted to pull me back in. But I got these amazing, you know, these kind of screechy uh, monkey screams that I've used a million times. Oh my God. I imagine every record trip has those unexpected moments that you just can never plan for. And I think that's a big part of the process is yeah. most of the, the sounds that you end up using the most are the ones that are least expected. Uh, yeah. Um, we, I remember Doug Hemphill and I went to the LA Zoo of all things. Usually zoos are not very keen on participating in these kinds of outings, but we found a very sympathetic trainer and we recorded Gita, uh, a gigantic um, Asian elephant who's since passed away. And uh, he led us in the pen and Gita charged. <coughs> Doug and I was booming and Doug was recording and we had to hightail it between two 
concrete bollards, but because we were tethered, we couldn't move very fast. And we really felt that primal fear as we made our escape behind the concrete barriers because we were right in, I mean, that elephant's mouth was right here. I, I could smell hay and grass or carrots or whatever yeah, elephants eat. <laughs> uh, but we were getting gold. I mean, it, I've used those elephant recordings so many times. They're, they're just so, I got the mic right in, his, right in the maw. Just beautiful. Yeah, I see a lot of other creatures from otters, sea lions, some kelp movement, dolphins. Dolphins feel like uh, there's different aspects. There's clicking, there's like the crying, and there's there's like different emotions that they're emitting. What, what did you find that dolphins gave you in your library that other animals wouldn't? They emit these hypersonic sounds. The cool thing about the dolphins is there's stuff in the frequencies that we can't hear that started to get really interesting when you drop them down into hearing range. So all that hypersonic stuff was, was really interesting. I, I wanted to get the classic flipper sound, you know, <laughs> and I'm not even going to attempt yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. We you got a roll the, sound, yeah. You, we know what the flipper sound is. I, I could never get that cackle or whatever we call it. But we got a lot of really great uh, clicking. We got the sonar sounds that they emit. And we got the, the high frequency, that, that sort of piercing, squealing sounds. Uh, those were pretty good. Yeah. yeah. When you started getting into canines and dogs, what did you find? There's, I mean, there's, there's so many different domestic types of dogs. What, what was the secret sauce? What was the, your takeaway of working with domestic dogs besides maybe getting them hungry or getting them to vocalize or to perform for you? Well, it, it, it's a number of things that usually involved a trainer. If it was a specific dog that I had to have and they came with a trainer and the train, most dogs are easy to train to at least make the barks and the growls and sometimes even the whimpers. Um, so the trainers were a big part of that. But um, one that some of the best sounds in the entire library are two pit bulls that we rented from the the staff, well, they don't call them pit bulls. They're called Staffordshire, Staffordshire Bull Terriers are the breed name. They're a very dignified and purebred dog. They, they, they're shown in shows, but they're known as pit bulls here because they, they have this reputation for being aggressive. Um, we were disavowed of that very quickly by the trainers and owners, so much so that we, we were allowed to take two dogs home with us from one of the, the breeders and my friend John Pospisil and I brought them into our studio over a long weekend and got, and just by just loving them, just cuddling and tickling and pulling on their tails and, you know, we, we, just, just playing with these dogs in close proximity. We got them to do the, you know, play tug of war with them. We got them to make these crazy growls and just these otherworldly sounds that you never thought would come out of a, a dog. Those are some of my favorite dog sounds in the library. If you look up either Pitbull or Staffordshire Bull Terrier, you'll find some great fodder for, for some growly creatures. 
That's awesome. Did you ever find that uh, technology over the years allowed you to, to do things with creature vocals that otherwise you were maybe limited in the past? Did the new technologies, yeah. new types of microphones, yeah. new types of plugins, like yeah. what, what did you find over the years? Well, the, the, the biggest um, benefit that we got was the high sample rates. That's the godsend for all of us. You know, in the early days, you know, you were at 48K and you, that meant your Nyquist frequency is 24K. That means if you slow, you know, our favorite technique is to slow something down or pitch it down. And that means that as you start knocking down those high frequencies, every time you take it down in speed or pitch, you're knocking down the upper realm of, of, of the upper harmonics. And those upper harmonics are the things that make something sound real and, and present and, and like they breathe and they're alive. Um, you know, they, in fact, the, the further, you know, you go four octaves and it starts to sound muddy and murky and it's losing clarity. So as technology progressed, we, 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 were, uh, we, we were given the ability to do better um, creature voice design because we would go out in the field and always capture at 192 kilohertz. 24-bit or a 32-bit floating point, and that allowed us to bring those sounds back into the studio using plugins that were 192 compliant, so that when you started to do the manipulations, you heard far, far less of the artifacts that you used to hear. You didn't, you didn't lose all that that air band up top uh, because the microphones were capturing up to 90 kilohertz. And so, you know, you knock down 90 kilohertz, you're down at 45, you knock that down another octave, you're down at 22 and a half, and you're still well above our hearing range. So you're keeping all those, those characteristics that tell the ear, yeah, this is something that I, 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 I could actually hear if it made a sound in front of me, because these are all the, the harmonics are part of what gives something credibility or verisimilitude. In the old days, you knocked those sounds down and, and you just started to get murky and muddy. So the, the technology has made the job a lot um, uh, more believable, I suppose, or at least the results of the design work a lot more believable because you're capturing so much more of the, the, the full audio spectrum. That's great. Um, you know, if we were to go back maybe before pro sound effects was on our radar and before there were sound effects libraries and people just had their personal libraries and there was, you know, there's different terminology and different processes that people would typically go through to catalog these sound effects. When I look at your library over the course of, for you, for you and Richard, I mean, we're looking, like we said here, 36,000 sounds just that are creature sounds. How did you continue to organize your sounds? Like what were some of the saving graces? Like what were the, the your takeaways about how you organized and the descriptors? Like, because um, there's certain words that otherwise you can't necessarily associate with human sounds because they're so uniquely animal sounds. So like, what are some of the things that when you started to organize your library kind of presented themselves that you're, you're like, Oh, animals and creatures, you could dedicate your whole life to just doing that. Yeah. Well, we were fans from the very beginning. We, we were some of the first to buy the, the first Apple computers and put a, an unknown database on it and build a relational uh, data file we were always huge fans of of cataloging our sounds. Um, animals make such a broad array of sounds, and there's no vernacular for it. You know, what is a squawk to me is a squug to you, and you know what's a roar to me is a growl to you. Um, we've tried to keep a certain amount of uniformity to those to those descriptions so that you can find the sounds. I mean, you can always find them 
by searching, you know, the name of the animal or the species or the, the actual um, uh, subspecies, uh, in, you know, in a library search. Um, I, I know one of the things that uh, Prosonovex has done brilliantly is um, um, codified this library to um, be part of the UCS, the Universal Cataloging System. I think uh, Tim Nielsen has uh, d developed this universally or globally accepted um, nomenclature system and cataloging system for sound so that, you know, in, in Germany, I don't, what's the word for a roar? It's, it's, it's not a roar, but we need to be able to interchange with each other. So this has all been kind of formalized in this UCS system and, and all of, I believe, uh, pro sound effects libraries are now adhering to that that um, cataloging system, which is tremendous. So it makes it a lot. So if you're looking for, you know, uh, a pit bull vibra growl, if you type that into the uh, uh, browser, you're probably going to see everything that you could see for that particular kind of sound because they've codified them all. So you'll, you, your searches will be a lot more complete that way. Uh, in, in the early days, we did that all by hand. You know, I'd bring in, you know, uh, a walrus series from the zoo and I don't know what you call you know I'd say walrus blubbers and walrus honks but maybe you'd call that something else and that that sometimes it was just a little arbitrary maybe sometimes that works for you sometimes it works against you yeah when you're I'm um, organizing it from taking the recordings editing them mastering them getting them into a shape where you can start to work with them well, what are some of the, your tips or takeaways about when edit, editing and mastering animal sound effects? I feel like a lot of times the uh, tail, like like you said, like you might be blending two different two different channels. Like when you, you are mastering some of these creature sound effects, what are some of the considerations that you take in terms of like, do you, are you putting in EQing? Are you you know how far do you go with post processing for for these sounds? The uh, pretty far, especially now with um, tools like Isotope that can solve. And this is another beautiful part of what um, um, ProSoundFX has done with our library. You know, in the early days of analog recording, long before there was Pro Tools and long before there was, um, you know, the ability to, to like extract a sound right out right out of the middle of of a recording, like with spectral repair. Um, we were stuck. If we were recording a great animal and a plane drove by or somebody shouted off in the distance, that was married to that recording. And so, uh, you know, uh, process number one in mastering is to remove all the dreck, get out the background sounds that aren't a part of, you know, what you, 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 you our goal, our the ideal situation is to have our sound sound like we brought that creature or that animal into an ADR studio and recorded it in a nice, clean, you know, environment with no background sound, but animals don't live that way. So you're always struggling to reduce atmospheric sounds and into incidental sounds that would sully them. So the mastering process is one of sucking out background when it makes sense without having a deleterious effect on the, on the vocals. Um, removing incidental sounds, you know, animals are usually in cages and pens, and that means outdoors, that means near birds. So there's always bird tweets of some kind sullying the recording. You know, if you, if you have a great lion roar and it's got some tweets on it, when you process that into your 
you know, your id monster for your film, you don't want to hear birds on it. So you, you've got to spend some time in mastering, plucking all those sounds out so that the recordings themselves are as pure as they possibly can be. Um, then you, you know, you want to make sure you get the heads and tails nice and clean. Uh, you don't want a bunch of air at the end. And one of my preferred techniques is to create kits, even though the animal may not perform in a, in a predictable way. Um, it's nice, you know, if over the course of three hours, you got five roars out of a, out of a big cat, I would take those five roars and I'd assemble them up front in my timeline. And that would be the master of all the roars, even though they weren't performed that way in real time. And then I'd assemble the growls together in, in a, in a recording, but not so granularly that when you thread it up in your, in your workstation, you know, you need, if you need five minutes of growl, but each cue is only 10 seconds long. You got to keep going to the library and pulling something out of your region list. I like to have kind of a longer performance of, of, of the, 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 the basic attitudes of these animals in, in one file or one recording. Um, what else do we that's, do? Yeah, that's great. One of the things I wanted to point out, which you mentioned, which is a category that you guys just called under creatures and beast. And beast to me seems like a, a, just an incredible treasure trove of ideas, over 3,000 sounds. And these are these are kind of like the end results of your own kind of creative designs. Is that right? Or how did you, how do you, what do you clarify or how do you, yeah, how do you clarify what beasts are? We don't have a, a, a place to look that, that guides us on this. We, we would use alternately. I, I know um, uh, the, the guys in the library have, have codified this to be a lot more consistent, but you know, if I'm, I had a creature in my movie that might be called a beast in Richard's movie. They still might be just something that doesn't exist in reality that is threatening to our protagonists. So it might be a beast. It might be a creature. It could be a monster. But definitely an alien in our nomenclature always meant sort of something from outer space. It was something that arrived in a spaceship <laughs> from the future and uh, would have a certain kind of mien to it. Um, creature might also be an alien creature Beast, probably much something much more like, you know, a Yeti or a Bigfoot. Beast to us was always something big and hairy that was like, a, you know, a, an anthropomorph, uh, some giant six, eight foot tall, hairy thing with a big, deep voice that roars. That was usually a beast. Creatures yeah, I mean, I'm usually like dinosaur mentioned here, evil creature. Yeah. Yeah, it's stuff that obviously doesn't exist in the real world, but in Hollywood, all these things are like, every other film has one of these guys. So yeah. it's, it's really cool to see some of those specific character archetypes kind of call, called out because I'm sure over the course of your guys' careers, it was like every other film that probably, you know, wasn't a talking head film had some version, like you're saying, uh, some evil creature that was, you know, the protagonist, you know, attacking the protagonist. So yeah. it's cool to see all this stuff. Well, the, all anything in the library that's tagged as a creature or monster started life as one of the animals we recorded sometime before it, or 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 yeah. sometime very close to it. You know, sometimes you just get inspired and you think, you know, I'm going to use a warthog for this, and you go out, you find a warthog, and then you bring it back into the studio and you process it right then and there. Yeah. Well, what's your, um, you know, your tip to folks who either have already invested or haven't invested in creature sound effects libraries? What are they 
for folks who don't have it, what are they missing out or what, how much, obviously like you've alluded to how much opportunity it's given you in terms of being having creative sound design, but what were some of the other unexpected outcomes of these creature vocals, you know, non-literal uses that, you know, you would say, hey folks, like creatures to me represent maybe like a third of the sounds that I, I'm, I'm always using or, you know, what, what's, what's your pitch to folks who have never had a creature sound effects library? Well, I'd, I suppose the pitch is this is a pretty formidable creature sound effects library and you can dip into that well a, a lot of times without ever repeating yourself, which you might not be able to say with another um, creature voice sound effects library, but we've also given you the raw elements to go do it on your own. Now, I recognize that there are schedules for certain kinds of, 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 of entertainment that don't afford you the time to either record them, much less come back and then spend, you know, your, your valuable time doing something to them till they sound like the, the monster you heard in your mind's ear. Uh, so you, you have a great opportunity to use sounds that um, have never been heard before and uh, maybe not repeat yourself or sound like somebody else's library. And then it, with just a very, very small amount of effort, you can go back into the animal portion of this library and find some of those crazy sounding animals and, and, and tweak them yourself and make, make them into something new and fresh for you. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's just something obviously like people won't really know how they're going to use it until they use it because there's so many alternative uses for animal creature vocals and it doesn't have to be just for the literal sense. You can just create like, I mean, you know, I think ever, like I said, every car in Mad Max was an animal sound and right. it's something we felt, but we didn't necessarily have to right. feel like, oh, well, that's the bear or, you know, yeah. that's a cougar and stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I was recording killer whales and though um, we, we captured their blowhole, um, we couldn't get, I couldn't get out to the ocean to record an actual humpback whale blowhole, but um, killer whales are pretty huge and formidable. I think we went down to Marine Land or one of those marine parks down in San Diego area. And we got these great sounds of them, you know, blowing air and water forcefully through the tops of their, their heads. And we used those sounds for the war rig whenever it was skewered by a harpoon. Again, following in this Moby Dick uh, narrative idea, uh, if, if the war rig were uh, Moby Dick, um, the, every time it spewed out milk, you know, whenever a harpoon would hit it and <laughs> spewed out milk, we used those, I, I, we used those um, blowhole sounds that I had recorded uh, from killer whales. So you get, you know, you're, you're always getting things you, you didn't need when you go out to record, uh, but you, you record everything and you know someday they'll, they'll be pressed into service. Oh, well, I'm excited. I, I just felt like whenever you're, the Odyssey collection, the first complete edition came out, it replaced another complete sound effects library that I had from college, which I just thought was like, I've heard these sounds a thousand times. Yeah. I don't need to use the same sounds again that everyone else has had in their library. So, you know, I'm excited to obviously have the opportunity to dig in more and use this because it's just sounds that we're going to keep coming back to. And I think we benefit from all the hard work that you and Richard did over the course of your career and continue to do that. You know, I, I think it's such a gift for both you guys to offer this to the sound effects community because 
you know, unfortunately, some of these sound effects libraries never get to see the light of day after people, you know, basically retire or pass on yeah. or whatever it may be. And yeah. it's not, you know. Well, that was, uh, thank you for saying that because in the early days, we were very protective, rightfully, of our sound library and we did not give it away. Um, but it, as, it, as we matured, we realized <laughs> that there was a huge asset. And it would be a sh this was a huge asset, and it would be a shame for it to disappear from usage. There, we've gotten so much joy, Richard and I, out of using this library for for decades and decades. It seemed a shame. Richard is now retired, and I'm 64, and I'm some number of years closer to retirement than you are. Yeah. So um, I, I didn't want to see this not appreciated because I get a giggle. And this is how much of a nerd I am. I, I get a giggle when I hear my sounds in somebody else's movie now. Because it's now in, it's being used. And uh, I, yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, so for folks, obviously, there's the Odyssey um, collection, the complete version. Like we said, the vehicles, Foley, ambiences, humans, and now creatures. So, yeah, Mark, really, it's such a pleasure always talking with you. I think if I chatted every time you released the sound effects library, I would not have any time to do anything else because there's, I can't imagine what else is on, you know, on your hard drive. And I'm excited to see how, what the future uh, unveils, but I, yeah, thank I have you so some much. really, really cool stuff coming. I'm just building up a, a new kit of things. Um, there's going to be some new animal stuff that I've been working on. There's going to be there's going to be an interesting collection of body sounds uh, that's coming out. That's going to be really weird. And there's some musical stuff. So samples, unusual samples of musical instruments that I think is going to be a really useful design tool. Well, for folks who want to check it out, it's prosoundeffects.com forward slash odyssey, where you can start going down the rabbit hole of the Mark Mangini and Richard Anderson <laughs> library. And yeah, Mark, so great to see you. I'm glad you're, you, you're well and you haven't given up on finding that perfect sound. So thanks so much. I keep doing it. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. <laughs>